I'm Steve. Hi. It's good to meet all of you. Meet. See. Anyway. Um, today's reading comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are in a very unique season as a church, are we not? Matt, our pastor, is off to fulfill his calling in other ways. And Nick, our new pastor, is not yet here. He will be here in July. Well, I guess he'll be here once in June, but for real, he won't be here till July. And so here we are in this in-between place, this place where we're not we're, we're not being led by Matt yet we're, anymore. We're not being led by Nick yet. And so we're in this strange sort of in-between place. And it can be a little confusing. It can be a little disorienting. But what I'm aiming to do here in these next few weeks, while we are in this in-between place, while we are on the threshold between two realities, is to try to convince us that God has good plans for us. Not in the future, yes, of course in the future, but now in the middle, in the place where we're not quite sure what we ought to do, not quite sure where we ought to go. So in order to convince you of that, hopefully, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a word that you may not know. It comes to us from the world of anthropology. Number three, I'm going to tell you about the revivalist Charles Finney. And then number four, finally, we're going to get to Deuteronomy chapter 8. There's a lot of ground clearing that needs to happen before we get to Deuteronomy, so bear with me. Now, let's start with a story. Um, It's 2013, and I am standing outside of the church building where I'm a pastor, putting a key in the door and locking it take the key out, and I drive that key over to the landlord from whom we're renting the building to turn the key in because I do not need that key anymore. After five years of being the pastor of that church, we are shutting the church down, and that is our last Sunday. So I give the key to him, and I get back in my car, and I don't cry, I don't weep, I just sit there, sort of staring into the middle distance, feeling nothing. And in that moment, a kind of darkness settled over me. And it's not like an evil kind of darkness, more like a disorienting kind of darkness, like you don't know, you have no light on where to put your foot next. That kind of darkness settles over me. And over the next couple of weeks, I get up early in the morning, as I do every morning before this, and I sit in my living room with my coffee and my Bible, and I read the Bible, and I pray 
except the darkness won't lift. I have no sense that God is with me. I have no joy in my faith. I have none of that. And that's very confusing to me because as a pastor, I would spend hours every day reading the scriptures, studying the scriptures, praying for my congregation, praying for myself, for my family, all of this. And I had a real sense that God was with me. I had a real sense of his presence, a real sense of his leadership. But now, there's nothing. And that feels wrong. It feels like there's something fundamentally off about that. And yet, no matter how many times I pray, no matter how many times I go to church, it feels all cold. It feels all dark. I have no indication of which way to go. But my new job is to be a teacher in a Christian school. And so I decide that I can't say anything about my real experience that's happening. Because I make a decision that the students need to have confidence in their teacher's faith. Like it's a a faith that should be intact. It's a faith that should be vibrant and robust. And so I decide not to say anything. That darkness does not lift for two years. So now it's 2015. I'm in my New Testament class. And so far, most of my assignments in this class have been very academic in nature. You know, like analyze this passage or, you know, see how this word changes meanings depending on the kind of context you find it in, et cetera, et cetera. And so I want my students to understand that the New Testament isn't just an academic book, that that it's actually a, a document that was breathed by God and and that it has spiritual implications for them as well. So I give them a very different kind of assignment on this particular day. I say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home. I want you to read the Gospel of Mark in one sitting. And then I just want you to write a reflection about how that was. What was that experience like? And after the great weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, died down for having to sit in one spot for that long and read, I could see they were confused. And so I said, listen, it's, it's not the, I, I, I'm, I'll be glad that you did the, the reading, but what I'm really interested in is that reflection. And by the way, I, I want your real reaction. I want your true reflection on this experience. There's no extra points for writing after this. Oh, when I read the glorious gospel of our Lord, the Shekinah glory flooded around me and the cloud was so thick I could barely breathe for joy. Oh, praise God and hallelujah for the gospel of Mark. No extra points for that. That may be your experience, but if, on the other hand, your experience is more dry, you you feel guilty, you don't want to be doing this, it's just an assignment to you, I, I wanna know that. So whatever happens, I just wanna know the truth. And they still don't seem like they're getting it. Uh, They're looking at me as if I had just said that smoking is now permitted in class. And it's like, okay, I feel something inside. I I feel this this little 
catch. They don't understand what I'm saying. Should I tell them what I've been experiencing? Should I be honest about my own experience? And I know I'm old enough at this point to understand that vulnerability usually wins the day. What's the worst that could happen? And so I decide I'm just going to tell them. So I sit down on my stool and I say, listen, here's what I mean. And they have to know this because in front of me are evangelical teenagers who have been raised to believe that happiness is the standard operating procedure for Christians, always. And so I say to them, listen, if I were to do this assignment, I would probably say, I read through the Gospel of Mark. It was hard. It was difficult. It felt dry and dusty. And the Lord was nowhere to be found. Because that's the way my life has been for the last two years. And supposing that continued while I read the Gospel of Mark, that's what I would write about. They still were not really getting it, but the, the class was over, and so I had to dismiss them. And so they leave the class, and I sit down at my desk to do some grading before I go home. And it wasn't five minutes before I got an email. This email was from a mom whose daughter was in my class that I just dismissed. And she said, I, I don't remember most of what she said actually, but I do remember three words very clearly. She said, how dare you? How dare you tell my daughter that living the Christian life without joy is okay? How dare you tell my daughter and all these impressionable students over which you have a charge, how dare you tell them that living in darkness, confusion, doubt, uncertainty is, has any kind of scriptural warrant. That is in fact anti-scriptural and needless to say, my daughter will not be participating in this assignment. So I just sat there looking at my screen, like not knowing what to say. But I didn't have to wait long because then my boss came in five minutes later. <laughs> who had been copied on this email. And it was okay because, you know, he's, he's 30 years my senior. He's been walking with Jesus for longer than I've been alive at that point, and I knew he would understand. And so he asked me about it, and he said, so tell me about what you've been going through. And so I told him. I told him everything. And he said, how long has this been going on? I said, about two years. And so he looks at me and he says, some more words that I will not forget. That is too long. And then he told me it was probably because of some unconfessed sin that I had in my life and that if I wanted to read this commentary that he's really been enjoying on the book of Proverbs, that I could get my joy back. 
which is interesting because the angry parent who sent me an email had also had a solution for me to get my joy back, namely that I could come to her church, which she emphasized was charismatic, and that if I went there, I would get my joy back, and the Spirit would lead me in the way that I should go. And so the message, the resounding message that I got from both of them is, this state of affairs is not okay, therefore fix it. So I had a decision to make in that moment. Do I go to the charismatic church and get my joy back? Do I read the books that my boss suggested and try to find my way out of this? Or do I embrace the mystery of what God has been up to in my life? I, I know it's not unconfessed sin. I've got men in my life who know me inside and out. I've discussed this with them. They, they know of nothing, I know of nothing. And so I'm just left to wonder. So what do I do? It was in that moment that God showed up. For, first time in years. And the interesting thing, it wasn't the way you would think. God didn't open the clouds. He didn't speak to me. There was no word. There was no deep impression. And I could only understand this in retrospect. But he showed up in the form of a conviction. And the conviction that I feel in this moment is this. I must embrace the mystery of what God is doing and not try to fix myself because my whole life I've been trying to fix myself and it doesn't work. And so I decided if I'm going to do that, then I've got to go to the Bible too and see, is there any warrant for this kind of experience? I mean, I've been told at least by two people now that this, and by the way, in my own heart, I, I feel this, like this is not a proper Christian experience. So I got to go to the Bible and find out if it's there. And what shocked me is that this kind of experience is everywhere in the scriptures. So, I mean, you could, you could hardly turn a page without seeing God's people in the wilderness or in exile or, you know, whatever. It's, it's amazing how much this happens. Go, go to the Psalms, see how many prayers there are that begin with, oh Lord, how far you are from me. How, don't, do not be deaf to my cries. It's everywhere. And that led me to some confusion. Very, I was very confused. How can the scriptures speak so profoundly and abundantly on this experience that I'm having, and yet these two people over here in my own heart, and, and I would say we as in general an evangelical church have lost all the vocabulary and syntax to speak about it to understand it. And so that sent me on a quest to try to understand this. And this is something we all share. The, the, I, I actually don't blame those two people in, in my life. Like, this is something that we have not been taught. This is something we have lost, and I hope to recover it today. Okay, now, in order to get into that, let me teach you a word that you may not know, you might, but you may not know, and it comes to us from the world of anthropology. Now, first of all, words 
Words are interesting phenomena. Like think about what a word is. A word is a, is a container of thought. Does that not blow your mind? Okay, listen. So I have this intangible thought in my head, in my brain. I package that cargo into a container called a word. I send it out like I'm doing now, and then that word goes into your ear, and the cargo is unleashed, and now you have an intangible thought in your head. <sighs> Think about that for a second. I mean, okay, but we have to go on. Now, have you ever felt something that you don't have the words for? I would assume the answer is yes for all of us. Have you ever felt something, had an experience that you could not articulate? If so, then you know that that feeling or that experience remains unintelligible to you. If you don't have the words for it, that means you don't have the thoughts for it, which means you can't interpret it. You follow so far? Yes? Okay. The point is, if you don't have a word for something, you cannot have a thought about it. If you want to go into detail on this, uh, you know, just go read George Orwell's canon of literature. Um, it, it's marvelous. That's, his, that's one of his main themes in all of his literature is that if you change people's words, you can change people's thoughts. Or if you remove people's words, you can remove their thoughts. And so words are containers of thought. And if we don't have a word for something, we cannot think about it. For example, there, there are many words in other languages that are untranslatable into English. Just like we have words in English that are untranslatable into other languages. If you were ever around my dinner table um, at my house... Basically, almost every night, we get done eating, the actual act of putting food in our mouths, and some of our kids are asking, can I be excused now? And when they say that, they know they are always going to hear the exact same word from me. And if they were here, I would ask them what it was, and they would shout it out. I don't know if they would, but the word is sobre mesa. If you speak Spanish, maybe you know this word. I don't, but I know the word. Um, sobre mesa. The word means the time that you spend together after a meal is over, enjoying the company of those with whom you just ate. <sighs> now, if you know anything about Spanish culture, this comes from Castilian Spanish, uh, you know, European Spanish. Um, no wonder they have a word for this. Of course, they, because this is what they do, right? They sit around, they enjoy each other, they fill the wine back up, and they keep talking, and they keep talking long into the night. We are not those kind of people. We, we've got things to do. We are efficient. The, the mouth holes are filled. Let's move on. So we don't even have a word for this, and if we don't have a word for that, we don't have any concept of it. We can't think about it. We can't enact it. So, here we are as a church in this in-between time. 
Matt has been leading us for 12 years, and his leadership is comfortable to us. It feels like, you know, an old shoe that you walk around in. It's like, yeah. It's kind of, I'm not comparing him to an old shoe, but like, you know, the comfort of it, the comfort of it. He smells fine. Um, but now we are in this transition. And if we have no word for this transition, we can't think about it rightly. We can't conceive of what God might have for us here. Now, not when Nick gets here. We, we can all, you know, dream about that. But what about now? What about in the in-between time? And so I have a word for you. The word that comes from the world of anthropology is liminal. Some of you may know this, some of you may not. Liminal, it comes from the Latin limen, which means threshold. So think of the threshold on a door. It's an in-between place. If you stand on the threshold of the door, you're neither in that room nor in that room. You are in the liminal space. Now, quick history on this. Uh, Arnold Van Gennep, uh, anthropologist, right, right around the beginning of the 20th century, he's the one who coined this phrase or this word. Um, and he was an anthropologist who studied African rites of ritual, or, um, rites of passage, excuse me. Um, and uh, what he saw there was that there are essentially um, three stages to these rites of passage, where the boys of a particular group of people are taken away, they are taught what it means to be men in that particular society, and then they are reintroduced as men into that society. And so that time when they are taken away from what they've grown up with, what they know, what they understand, they, they come away, that is the liminal state. They are going to be reintroduced later, but for now, for these few weeks or few months or whatever it is, they are in this in-between time. They are no longer boys, but they are not yet men. They are in-between. It's vague. And so, this was groundbreaking work um, that Van Gennep was doing. Um, and then over the course of the 20th century, other anthropologists, in fact, other um, disciplines, scholars and other disciplines, had grabbed onto this idea of liminality and applied it in many different ways. In fact, Bjorn Thomason uh, takes this concept of liminality and says, it's basically, if you want to boil it down to what it, the, the basics of it is it's how humans deal with change. It's how humans deal with any change, going transition from one reality into a new reality. There's that in-between time that is confusing, that is sometimes upsetting. But the liminal space, the liminal time, these people tell us, always has a few um, characteristics. It is disorienting. It is confusing. There's doubt. There's uncertainty. But even though that is true, it's also a place of pure possibility. If the liminality of a time or a place is embraced rather than rejected, if you embrace the liminal space, embrace, embrace the liminal time, you, you begin to dream about the future. What could be? What should be? And then the liminal time actually turns us into the kind of people that can inhabit that future that we dreamed of. And so when I understood this, 
I went to the Bible. I started seeing liminality everywhere. There's 40 years that God's people spent in the wilderness. They were no longer slaves, but they were not yet in the promised land. They went into exile, into Babylon. And the, the, um, the prophet Jeremiah comes and says, hey, listen, you're going to need to settle down here. You're going to need to plant gardens, build houses, because you will be here for 70 years. There's the intertestamental period where there's something like 400 years between the last word from God in the prophets and the arrival of Jesus Christ. Where was God? It was this liminal space. Maybe the most significant one is Holy Saturday. That, that day between the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. There was the 40 days between the uh, resurrection of Jesus and Pentecost, which we are celebrating this very day where there was no pouring out of the Spirit, where, where the disciples hid behind locked doors because they did not know what to do next. It's confusing. It's disorienting. Thomas, I'm not going to believe in him. Not until I see him. Not until I put my, you know. There's doubt in this time. And maybe, most profoundly, the church age is a liminal time. Christ has come. He has died he is resurrected. He has sent his spirit upon us in the church, excuse me, on the day of Pentecost. And so we live in sort of that already experience of what is to come, but it is not yet full. We have not yet reached those celestial shores, and so we live in this sort of liminal space. And so in every case, the question is this. Okay, this is all over the Bible. The question is this. Why does God do this? Why does God lead his people into these times? Why does God lead his people into these places? And do you know why? In, I don't have time to go into all of them. If you're interested, you can go into them yourself. But in every case, the answer to the question of why does God lead his people into liminal spaces, into liminal times, is this. To make them holy. to sanctify them. So, the question is, how did we lose this? Like, this is a, this is a major theme in the scriptures where God leads his people into these places. It is, it is to be expected. It is to be a normal experience of the Christian life. How did we lose this? And it is, it be, if you look through the Bible, it is a major phase of his people's sanctification. So how did we lose this? And how do we reclaim it? Well, in order to understand how we lost it, I need to tell you about the 19th century revivalist Charles Finney. Now, He did lots of good things, but, um, but here's a place where I have a beef with him. Now, the Bible says clearly that God uses the liminal space, God uses the liminal time to sanctify his people. But that angry parent and my boss suggests that at some point in history, we began understanding the liminal space, that place of confusion, disorientation, doubt, 
despair, darkness. We started interpreting that not as a path to sanctification, but as a threat to sanctification. Okay, now how did that happen? Well, for most of, most of church history, about 1,900 years of it-ish, um, this is how the Christian life was conceived. So picture a mountain, nice triangular mountain. For most of church history, conversion to Christianity meant this. You are now deposited at the base of that mountain. At the top of that mountain is union with Christ, full union. And then everything in between is sanctification. You follow? And so in that way, of climbing that mountain is difficult. There will be times and there will be seasons where you stumble on a rock. There will be times when you're not sure that you can go on, where you don't know the path, where you, inadver- you purposely start walking back down because you don't want to do it anymore. Like there will be seasons, but ultimately sanctification is the climb. And then at death, we reach that final union with Christ. Now, that isn't to say that sanctification comes by works. It's always been the case that sanctification is by grace. Let me say something more on that in a minute. Now, there's a point of historical inflection where that really changes, at least here in America. Not so much elsewhere, but it's definitely here in America, and that is with the rise of the evangelist and revivalist Charles Finney. Now, as I said, he preached in the 19th century. He was a major figure. And there were others, and I'm skipping over a lot here, but just for the sake of brevity, we're just going to focus on Charles Finney. Um, he was probably the, the most significant figure of what we, figure of what we call the uh, Second Great Awakening here in America. And so his big innovation on the theology of conversion was this, instant conversion. Now, now this should start sounding familiar to those of us who grew up in America. Instant conversion. When you feel the thing, you know, there's no waiting. There's no counting the cost, as our Lord taught us to do. When you feel the thing, you come down the aisle, and that's it. No, that's fine, that's fine. But what happened here is that for most of church history, that instantaneous conversion would have put that person at the base of the mountain. But what Finney did is he took sanctification in a new direction. What Finney taught, and by the way, he was extremely influential, okay, so that's why we're talking about him. What Finney taught is that at conversion, you are placed at the top of the mountain. So by faith, you enter into the kingdom of God. You are converted, but you are now in full union with Christ at conversion, at conversion. You are now fully sanctified at conversion. And so this is a major, um, this is a major turn. Now, to be clear, the Bible does say that we are sanctified by grace. But it, if you read the New Testament... There is strenuous effort involved in sanctification. 
Not earning, but effort, for sure. But not for Finney. For Finney, conversion meant final union with Christ. And so this kind of teaching, this kind of understanding about um, sanctification became ubiquitous under Finney's extreme um, influence. And so there was a problem. He began teaching this, but then some of his converts, many of his converts, started sinning after they were converted. Can you imagine? They weren't living up to their final union that they had in Christ. And so the historical biblical perspective would look at those people and say, yeah, that's, that's to be expected. This is a long climb. It is not easy. You are opposed on every side. Pick yourself up. You are forgiven. Keep walking. But Finney's theology had no place for that whatsoever. Therefore, he constructed a robust theology of backsliding. Okay, you know this word, yes? Okay, good. Um, is, is this sounding familiar? Is this, because even if you didn't know Finney, like this is, okay, we, we've inherited this. So for Finney, this, it, any post-conversion sin, any post-conversion doubt, any post-conversion confusion or dryness is, is now categorized as backsliding. You are coming down the mountain. And that is not okay. Finney had no tolerance for the liminal state. We're at the pinnacle, he says. Doubt, confusion, darkness, all of that is tantamount to rejecting your first love. It is not a valid step toward your first love. And so that's how liminality became a threat to sanctification, not a path toward it. Now, finally, how do we reclaim it? And for that, we come back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. So this is Moses' last sermon before he dies and the people of God enter the promised land to go claim their inheritance. And so in 8, let me read it again. The whole commandment, Moses says, that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor, your father, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So why does God lead his people into the liminal places, into those in-between times, into those places where you don't know where to go, into those places where the, the path behind you is washed away, the path in front of you, in front of us, is shrouded in fog, and we don't know where to go? Doubt, confusion, sin. Why does he lead us into these spaces where these things become so easy? Well, Moses tells us two reasons. Number one, we find in verse two, that he might humble you. And the, the 
Israelites needed humility. You, you know their story probably, that as they saw the, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm of God bringing them out of Egypt where they were, had been enslaved for hundreds of years, he brought them out and brought them to the base of Mount Sinai, which was covered in fire and smoke. And they said to Moses, you go up and talk to God. We don't want to hear that voice because it terrifies us. And so Moses does. He goes up onto the mountain and he speaks with God for 40 days, getting the covenant of the Ten Commandments to bring back down. But in the space of those 40 days, the people are tired of waiting. They are tired. Uh, they think Moses, maybe he died. We don't know what happened to him. And so they grab hold of the high priest, Aaron, Moses' brother, and say, hey, make us a god. And he does. He makes them a golden calf. And he raises them up in one of the most tragic scenes in all the Bible. He raises these two golden calves up and says, behold, O Israel, your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. And so they had broken the covenant even before they, Moses came down the mountain. So they needed humbling. I mean, the, the walk from, you know, Egypt to Israel, I don't know, a couple weeks maybe. But they were in the wilderness for 40 years because God wanted them there. God kept them in that liminal wilderness to humble them, to know what was in their hearts, which is to say, to sanctify them, to make them holy, to make them worthy of the calling to which they had been called, which is to say, to be a kingdom of priests in this world. So that's the first reason he leads us into these spaces, that he might humble us. The second reason is to help his people discover that they have no other source for their lives than the Lord himself. So we're talking about two sides of the same coin here. God leads into the liminal space in order to teach them humility and dependence. This is what the liminal time is for. Humility and dependence. It may be dark, it may be confusing, it may last 40 years, it may last our entire lives. Fortunately for us, we kind of know it's going to come to an end in a month. But regardless, we are still in this time. We may stumble, but God in his unfathomable love leads us here to teach us one very simple truth, namely that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is why we have this time, so that we may learn this. And that is sanctification. We're, we're so used to thinking about sanctification in, in, in the spiritual life in individual terms. This is what he's doing with us together as a community. He is sanctifying us. And if, if in our minds we, we start at the top of the mountain, then we miss God's purposes for leading us into these uncertain places, these uncertain times, these foggy times. If we start at the top of the mountain, the only explanation for this doubt, for this post-conversion sin, whatever, is sin. And, and you fix it. And that only leads to more guilt and shame. But that is not what the Bible teaches us. In the Psalms, as I mentioned before, confusion abounds. Crying out for God's attention abounds. This is a normal experience of the Christian life. So, here we are. We are in this liminal time together. 
Matt has served us for 12 years. We're waiting on Nick. Through this period of uncertainty, doubt may creep in. Uncertainty may creep in. But Deuteronomy teaches us, Moses teaches us, the Lord our God teaches us in this passage that this time is for us, this in-between time is for us to learn humility and dependence upon him, to teach us that we are first and foremost God's congregation. The Lord is our shepherd. We praise God that we had Matt. We praise God that we have Nick to come. But more fundamental than any of those leaders, it's so easy for us to use those leaders as proxies for the reality that we are actually God's congregation. And guess what? We get this time to learn that, to internalize that, so that when Nick comes, we don't have to use him for any particular reason other than to lead us in the ways of God. We know that we are God's congregation. And so we may stumble during this time, it's true, but we have confidence because we look to Christ who is our good shepherd, who after his baptism was, remember, driven into the wilderness for 40 days. And for 40 days he fasted. And then at the end of those 40 days, the devil comes to tempt him. And he says to him, hey, turn those stones into bread. And the thing is, Jesus could do it. We know from his other miracles, he could turn things into bread. And there's no law against it. He wouldn't be breaking God's law to do it. So why did he not do it? Why did he not satisfy his hunger by turning stones into bread? He refused, not because he was unable but because he knew what the liminal space and the liminal time was for. And what is it? Matthew 4, 4. But he answered the devil, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. How did he learn that? He learned it from Deuteronomy. He quotes it right back to the devil. And so we need not fear stumbling in this time, in this in-between space. Christ kept the requirements of the liminal time, of the liminal space for us perfectly. And so all we are to do in this time is to learn that we are to be humble and we are to be dependent on the Lord our God. And so let us rehearse this over these four weeks without ceasing. Roswell Community Church does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of our God. And all the people said, amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, It doesn't seem right to our sensibilities that you lead us into places of doubt, confusion, uncertainty, darkness, where you seem to withhold yourself, and yet we see it. It is everywhere in the scriptures. If we were to submit to our teachers in the scriptures, we would find 
an abundance of material to help us through this time. But we thank you. We want to embrace it. You have invited us into this place, this in-between time, this threshold between two realities, and we gladly embrace the mystery of what you intend to do during these few weeks. And we love you, and we commit ourselves to you, our shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we come to this table. This table reminds us that we do not live by bread alone. You cannot fill your stomach up on what is here. But what you can do is fill yourself to the brim, or be filled, I should say, by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And the words that come forth from God's mouth at this table, from Christ himself who has has set this table, is this, I love you. You are mine. Follow me. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ.